Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Sneakers. This LTX-71 concealable mic is part of the same system that NASA used when they faked the Apollo moon landings. Work for them. Shouldn't give us too many problems. They break and enter. How are we doing? Cause and position on the fire escape. Mothers in the cable vault. Preparing to sever master circuit. But they're not thieves. We're getting too old for this. They know your secrets. But they're not spies. It's gotta be there somewhere. What's he doing? He's making a really. Mr. Bishop, do you mind if I take a look? Carl. Grow up. I give you something to work, baby. So people hire you to break into their places to make sure no one can break into their places? It's a living. Not a very good one. Now they've got a new client. National Security Agency. I don't work for the government. Relax, Marty. It's just everybody on your team has had some sort of problem in their past. Now what do you say? The NSA killed Kennedy? No, they shot him, but they didn't kill him. He's still alive. They may not want the job. Liz, I need your help. I will not be dragged back into your world. But they don't have a choice. We don't want to bust you. We want to hire you. We're the good guys, Marty. Can't tell you what a relief that is, Dick. Your job is to find that little black box. We got it. Holy cow. What the hell is this? There's a war out there, old friend. A world war. Oh, my God. How is this possible? It's not about who's got the most bullets. It's about who controls the information. Anybody want to shut down the Federal Reserve? Hey, don't wait, screw wait, around wait, with that wait, thing. Wait. It's all about the information. So it's the code breaker. No, it's the code breaker. Battle stations. Do you have the item? Can you guarantee my safety? Where is the item? Can you guarantee my safety? Martin, you've got trouble. Here, maybe this might help. Old buddy of mine who was in Desert Storm sent it to me. Of course, he was on the other side. Now give me the box, Martin! I'm an excellent marksman, woman. I'm Carl. There's a fire escape at the end of the North Corridor. Go directly north, directly north, about 30 yards. Five seconds. Hang up, fish. Hang up. They've almost got us. This is another of our commissioned shows, ordered by Nick, a.k.a. N. Scott G., and it's a movie we have never seen before, Sneakers from 1992. It's rarely spoken about in critical terms. All I could find on YouTube at all was an ancient and very dismissive Siskel and Ebert review. They gave it about two and a half minutes, as I recall, which is clearly heresy to to big fans of the movie. Uh, Directed by Phil Allen Robinson for $35 million and taking $105 million at the box office, it has an 81% freshness rating and feels in 2016 like a precursor to things like Ocean's Eleven and the remake of The Thomas Crown Affair, insofar as it is about handsome, middle-aged thieves who don't really want to hurt anybody. It has a similarly star-studded cast to Ocean's Eleven, all of whom are looking pretty good for 1992. Robert Redford, Ben Kingsley, Mr. Sidney Poitier, Dan Aykroyd, River Phoenix, David Strathairn, Mary McDonnell, Stephen Tobolowski, and finally, James L. Jones as Nick Fury. <laughs> it's true, though, it's true. Once again, James Horner is on scoring duties. We just seem to keep exploring his archives with these commission shows, him and Jerry Goldsmith. It's also an exceptionally rare instance of a movie about hacking where the resounding chorus from the audience is not, that's not how computers work. 
Seriously, and especially since it was made in the 90s when there was a lot of like oddball ideas of to, as to how the, the cyber highways would, would run. Uh, seriously, it might seem obvious to you and I, but uh, computer coding and cracking is usually handled in movies with the kind of concession to reality as Harry Potter's spellcasting. Now, we need a small team of experts with this one, well-versed in the characters and confluence of events of sneakers, so welcome back to the show. Alistair Stewart, owner of Escape Artists Inc. that produces The Escape Pod, Pseudopod, Podcastle and Cast of Wonders shows, as well as the digital magazine Mothership Zeta. Hello, Alistair. Hi, guys. How you doing? I'm pretty good. And Marguerite Kenner, host and editor of Cast of Wonders and COO of Escape Artists. Hi, everybody. Hello. I'm also suffering from con crud, so if I sound horrible and congested, that's why. Which con were you actually at? So we were just at Fantasy Con. It's in. It's been an interesting convention season for us because we did Edgelit, Nine Worlds, and then World Con all pretty much back to back. Had a house move, went to Fantasy Con for 36 hours, and that's when we got ill. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you wore yourself down and sort of left the doors open. That's that's when the con flu can creep in. It's yeah. been a dramatically busy summer. That yeah. is correct. Yeah. It always gets you on the night you're tiredest. Yeah, or the last day, basically. Yeah, I think that's exactly yeah. what happened. An idle Tuesday when I realized my obligations for the year were met. So then the illness strikes. <laughs> Marguerite has this incredibly efficient immune system, which waits until there isn't anything on her to-do list and just goes... I'm taking the day off. That and is... We're, we're, we're pretty certain that's what's yeah, happened. that was today. Mine's generally the same. I get it from my father, um, who was exquisite at having leave booked and then coming down with something horrendous on literally the second day of his... Oh. Yeah, but Sharon's only ever ill for one day at a time, and then that's she's true. fine the next day. I, I have it for, ye- for years. It lingers. I'm still suffering from colds I had when I was six. <laughs> <laughs> If I'm good about it and I just go to bed for six hours, wake up, do something, then go right back to bed, I can tend to burn it mm. in 36 hours. But this lovely honey lemon ginger cordial we, we have is, is helping a great deal as well. Mm. I might get some of that myself. I'm feeling pretty rough. Okay. So uh, you guys, like, uh, you're big fans, and, and we, we jumped at the chance to be able to recruit you for this one. Um, so so mm. like, you're going to need to fill us in because this this has only really been on our radar for hours, literally hours. Um, you know, whereas for, for you guys, it's old history. It's decades old. So, so when did you guys first see this movie? I saw it at the theatres in 1992. I, <clears throat> a, a brief kind of historical sidebar. I grew up on the Isle of Man, which is the small island between England and Ireland that the weather forecasters always stand in front of. <laughs> and we had three screens two of which were in one building, which was also a bingo hall, and on occasion the casino. And I I think the best way you can describe my childhood is is the way that one of my best friends did, where he said, for you, Father Ted is a hard-hitting documentary series. (laughs) Really, when you grow up on the Isle of Man, you have two choices uh, in how you make your own fun. You can either be kind of very, very, very outdoorsy, like several friends of mine were, who did things like build mountain boards and join the the coast guard and and do research into why petrol bombs are always in glass bottles and um, your other option was read a lot watch out the video store and go to the movies and I very much went down that route and I remember Mm -hmm. seeing the trailer for this thing and and it just peeling the back of my head off because this looked like a film that was clever 
And I mean, I was growing up in the period where, and I, I mean no disrespect to him, but I was growing up in the period where, you know, problems were solved in most movies by John Claude Van Damme punching them. <laughs> and to, to see something which was clever and nerdy, and I mean, this was even before that kind of epochal moment at the end of Buffy season one where Willow goes, no, it's okay, nerds are in. You know, just felt completely left of center. So I was incredibly excited to see this. And it, it didn't disappoint me at all. Um, I can't remember the first time I saw it. I think, I think I had watched some sort of horrific Mortal Kombat hackers back-to-back special, and somebody went, "No, no, no! You need to see a real computer movie," <laughs> and and sat me down in front of sneakers. And I love that thing to little teeny tiny pieces. So, I mean, like, you guys are fans of Hackers as well, aren't you, though? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, if, yes. if we do a Hackers show at some point, we'll probably be recruiting you for that, too. If awesome. you're going to do it, though, then you also have to do Algorithm, because you get oh. kind of full spectrum at that point of good hacking movies. Uh, okay, I was actually just about to say, but Hackers is a very different beast to this, because... Um, ha- hackers is very much trying to appeal to the kids and trying to make hacking sexy. Action hacking. Action hacking. It, it's action it, culture hacking, whereas yeah. sneakers is, oh, look, they actually know how to use electrical diagnostic equipment. Yeah. Mm. I, they, they never seem to really try to be sexing it up. Neither did they get all snooty and go, this is something that no ordinary person could ever do. Uh, they were just, you know, sort of like, okay, we're going to get this done, and then they just seem to do it uh, uh, without well, she- the, the magic magician's flourish. Mary McDonald's character describes it perfectly. This is a boys' club, and you have your little clubhouse, and you have your little games, and your little rules. It's, I mean, the characters are downplayed, and they never get really deep into individual, you know, backstories and stuff. I love the fact that we don't understand why Mother's character's name is Mother. Hmm. It just is. But this is a group of men who refuse to grow up, who live in an expensive area with fantastic technology all around them and they are professional tinkerers who are trying to find a way to turn it into enough of a job that they don't hate to keep doing it. One of the very, very earliest lines you hear after the the successful bank job that opens the movie, uh, the point where Bish is is getting his check cashed and and the cashier has that line about, so you're employed to break into people's places to stop people breaking into people's places. It's a living, not a very good one. Hmm. And that kind of sets the sets the tone. This isn't this this group of kind of elite high tech super badass troubleshooters. This is five crumbled assholes who really don't know how to do the rest of the world. So they've just kind of figured out this niche and they're clinging to it as hard as they can. Well, yeah, they, that, that line about well, we haven't paid the typist, so you've got to do it. Precisely. You know, it, it's exactly that. It is wonderfully crumpled. If this was a crime series, it'd be Columbo. Yes. You know. Let's pick our way through the movie. Try and like let's not spoil it, and sort of like give people an idea of like sort of what's going on as we're as we're as we're doing it. Um, and it's the 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 main lead of the uh, film is Robert Redford as a fellow named Martin Bishop. Uh, or does he also change his name to Martin Bryce? No, Martin Bryce is his real name. Bishop is the alias he's been going by since he's been trying to keep one step ahead of the police. So it's the other way around. His name was Martin yes. Bryce and he changed it to Martin Bishop. Okay, he changed it because back in 1969 when he was at... Where did, where's the actual college that they're it at? It doesn't 
say, but it looks very much like a UC Berkeley campus building in the snow. Okay, so it's it's 1969, and very gratifyingly, they've done this young actor up to look like Redford in Butch and Sundance. Am I am I right there? (laughs) Oh yes. Um, And uh, when the DVD first started, it was uh, it was all square, and I went, oh god, we've picked up a DVD so old, it's in pan and scan. But then I noticed that the text was actually breaking the box, and it's actually it was going outside the frame. So I was like, oh, "Hang on, there's some shenanigans going on here." Oh, it's a flashback sequence, and it's in black and white as well. Um, and the the actual text itself uh, it, it, it starts disarmingly with anagrams, which are I think was it like a turnip film or something like that. A turnip for Elvis. Or a something. turnip for Elvis, and yeah. then that that changes around to the production company name. I, I didn't note all of them down. But uh, it, it's, it basically it hints at the, uh, the the Scrabble unpuzzling and anagrams that happens later in the film, which actually Thomas Crown Affair does that as say, well. Yeah. During the Thomas Crown Affair credits, it switches a lot of the matching letters around of the uh, names to indicate the switcheroos that happen in the movie. It's one of my favorite scenes of that whole movie because it's such a beautiful visual memo- metaphor for oh, yeah. all of the very deep thought they're going through. Mm. And they both have lovely kind of relaxing soundtracks as well. It's uh, yeah. James Horner. There's actually an almost, like, there are times when, I mean, we've said this repeatedly and, and um, about James Horner's stuff. Sometimes he overshoots a bit and makes something sound straight up ethereal when it's, it's supposed to be just something like a conversation on a roof. And you're like, hang on, what's going on here? Are they about to unlock the internet? <laughs> but, um, but it is a lovely uh, score to, uh, to listen to. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. It's on rotation here in the office. We have a strict office protocol now that we share one, which is all music has to be instrumental. Uh-huh. Uh, we can't have anything with lyrics in it because we're both generally writing or working. And so we take turns with various who picks what soundtrack. Sneakers is on frequent rotation. Yeah, it is. You guys introduced me to the soundtrack to Oblivion, a film that I completely passed up, but the actual score. Yeah as you stated Alistair is really great to listen to so like it's could, fantastic could you do me a favour and just any time that there's a film that I would otherwise have passed off such as for example Lady in the Water is my favourite of this uh, the, the, the film itself is a bunch of arse but the actual soundtrack is amazing tell me because I love soundtracks of course no worries sir Okay, but I mean, uh, with sneakers, it's it's fairly appropriately uh, uh, placed, and it's got this kind of lyricism to the and a, a sort of lightness of touch to it as well. So you know that you're not going to be in for the sort of bum 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 Hans Zimmer stuff of, uh, yeah. of modern thrillers. That would make it sound too much like an action hacking film, and it's no. not. Yeah, no. So yeah. Well, let's be honest. The best part out of the entire hackers movie experience is the soundtrack. This yeah. is true. Yeah. There's. Just kind of stop, stopping on this point very briefly, there is one moment in, in Sneakers where the soundtrack becomes something I think really quite extraordinary, mm-hmm. and it's the point where Whistler and Carl are playing with the box mm-hmm. and everyone else is playing Scrabble. Mm-hmm. And very slowly, the music and the direction just turn into this kind of vice, and everything gets shorter and choppier and more kinetic as they start to figure out what the box is and as everyone starts to work on this problem. And there's this tick that Phil Alden Robinson has, which I didn't notice until this time. I must have watched this movie like 10, 15 times. He has this really simple way to get added momentum and impetus to a scene. And it's he has someone walk across the back of it and walk into shot. There's a moment with the box where Liz walks into shot 
and it corresponds perfect. She says something which raises the stakes or kind of zeroes them in a little bit more. And it just combines with the music and the way it's shot and the way it's written to create this moment which is incredibly tense and unsettling and is literally five people looking at a screen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's actually, um, the, are, there are moments in this where the tension that's created by next to nothing happening is incredible. There's there's mm. a scene. Um, uh, we know it, it involves know what I'm talking less about. Than two meters a minute, doesn't it? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And I was just I sat there, and my, my fingernails were digging into my palms, yes, yes. and I suddenly thought, hey, he's walking across a carpet very slowly. Is there like a laser gate <laughs> yes. or something? Yeah. <laughs> oh, actually, speaking of laser gates, that's the other film series. This reminded me of the uh, Mission Impossible, specifically the the oh, yes. later ones. Mm. Uh, that kind of like a bunch of of uh, geeks, effectively. So around talking about how they're gonna um get stuff and uh, there, there was a point where when um when he wakes up and uh the the bond villains there i i just sort of you know muttered under my breath where's the rabbit's foot and i just thought <laughs> oh god it's gonna be that but it, it turned uh, into something I, different I have, a, a, I have a small piece of personal headcanon that mm-hmm. the characters from this along with the main characters from hudson hawk actually consult for the IMF from time to time. Uh, we have never seen Hudson Hall. We've got to see it. It's, it's only <gasps> ever... <laughs> oh, my God! Okay, okay. Let me just check I, okay. Netflix. Hang on. <laughs> Put that on the list. It Let was on there. It's, it's on our list already. We just didn't have time. Uh, well, we didn't, we didn't set aside time. There's always something better to see than a mostly maligned early 90s heist caper. Yeah, as, as Marguerite said, uh, there it's... It's hard. You, you can't really call it a good movie, but it's one of those movies that after you've seen it, you want to understand many more things. Okay. Because it's referenced in such subtle ways by so many other films. Yeah. Right. It was there for so many months, but now Hudson Hawk is gone in the morning, just like old Jack Burton. And oh. I waited too long, so I'm going to have to buy it now. Brilliant. Thanks, Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's okay. Check is in the mail. No, that's fine. There's quite, there's quite <laughs> Just, a few I got that. Um, sort of little reminders of other movies in this. Um, mm-hmm. And it did occur to me that most of them are actually to do with Robert Redford. Mm. Um, for example, although he's not in the intro, we do get the impression that he really doesn't like Nixon very much. Yeah. Was he saying, who should we make the donation to? And I thought he was going to go, mm, Washington Post. <laughs> <laughs> we were all waiting for that, wouldn't weren't we? Oh, so it wasn't yeah, exactly. just me. That's good. Um, and then it does kind of have a, a slightly similar feel to certain parts of Three Days of the Condor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what, what was it you said about the um, the Marvel villains? Oh yeah, mm, uh, c- mm. there's a, there's another Marvel villain in this movie. <laughs> I've all, you guys can guess because I've mentioned him in the, in the cast. So it's basically like two. Hidden Marvel villains. In, yeah. you know, that, and this is what they were doing in the early nineties. That whole scene, the, the the whole interaction between those two, and I will leave the name of the other individual carefully <laughs> off, is possibly one of my favourite bits of cinema ever. And I, I will say, I think this film probably has my favourite ending of all time because it's upbeat, which is so rare. Yes, and, and it manages to be upbeat in an incredibly 
realistic and grounded way. Yeah. It captures the fundamental absurdity of real life in a film which has not had very much to do with that very, up until that point. But the interaction between the, the these two characters, and, and one of them is obviously Bishop, and the other one we will keep nameless, is just this beautifully realized completely intellectual discussion about something which is on no level whatsoever just intellectual and it says fascinating things when looked at in a wider cultural context about the evolution of stories like this and I mean you can plot every movie we've talked about Hackers, this, Algorithm God help us all, Johnny Mnemonic (laughs) all of it on a straight line and see the evolution of the morality and ethical framework that lies at the heart of this, or, or lack of it. And it's the, that scene, and the point towards the end, the way that it's scripted is almost musical for me. The way Almost that- nothing. The soundtrack absolutely reinforces it. You get the return of the playful theme, yeah. and whereas before you were literally gritting with your fingernails holding on as a guy was walking across the room at two meters per minute, and you couldn't understand why you were tense. Now... In a scene that should be dramatic and scary, and that where there are guns involved, the playful music is back. Mm. This and and it just it does so much fascinating stuff with subversion of expectation in that way, and mm. it it does that. And I mean, because I, I mean, it's a, we, we we pre-games for, for for you guys. We rewatched this a couple of nights. Any ago. excuse, Thank you, guys. you know, um, and one of the things that that's really kind of that zeroed in for me is one of the main reasons why I love this so much. This movie is close-up magic. I I trained as a magician, as a teenager, um, and there are so many moments in this that there is a moment, that the moment where you have the hobo who says, help me, the government took away my house, and then 20 minutes later... He says it again, and, and you find out why. Yeah, and most importantly, one of the earliest lines in the movie, and it never fails to make me laugh, when they, they're doing the initial job on the bank, and you have God who's watching the old crappy movie. And if you listen, the single line of dialogue you hear from the movie is, but I looked in that box just a second ago, and there was nothing there. And that informs the rest of the film so much. The, this entire movie is about whether or not there's something in the box, whether what's in the box works, and who really built it. Stop, now it's crossing over with seven in my head. Thanks a lot. And just, you know, horribleness. But but yeah, I, I, that, that always makes me smile. It's Schrodinger's box. I was going to say Schrodinger's <laughs> box. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so we left you folks uh, back in 1969 with a young man who looked like Robert Redford, and uh, we were on second two of the movie. Um, after a bunch of anagrams uh, which rearranged themselves into the names of the uh, cast and uh, production team of the film. Um, this black and white uh, flashback shows uh, young Redford and uh, a, a, what was the name of his uh, buddy? Uh, Cosmo. 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 They're they're cocky um, students and they're hacking into the the earliest, most primitive form of internet. Um, and they are transferring funds from Richard Nixon's account to... Um, the NAACP. It? That's it, yeah. 
And no, it was the was it the Black Panthers? Oh, the Black Panthers as well. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Yeah, um, it, it, it's a it's a number of places, and uh, they they pretty much try to transfer everything that Nixon has. And uh, Redford goes out for pizza, and uh, hit, then the FBI storm the building, and Redford goes, oh, <laughs> and um, sidles off to Canada while his buddy gets sent to jail for a long time, like a federal prison. Yeah. Then we cut forward, and uh, he's basically doing, like, hacking jobs. He is retained by companies, and in this case it was a bank, to hack into them to see how easy it is for other people to hack into their systems, to, to, mm-hmm. to show the weak spots. Which Security makes sense. Security yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he, he and his team, uh, Dan Aykroyd, uh, River Phoenix... Uh, good night and good luck. Not good night and good lucks. David Strathern, uh, who plays, I think the mother thing could that be a reference to Alien? Ooh, Ooh. but it's Dan Aykroyd's character whose mother. Ah, uh, okay. I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. Okay. Well, um, uh, Dan Aykroyd gets to play against type as a loony conspiracy nut. And <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I, there's one point where he mentions the uh, the faked Apollo moon landings, uh, and uh, it just it just it reminded me of uh, that those uh, clips of him talking about how you know I don't think that any alien life is going to want to make contact with the human race night right now, especially not after nine eleven. And um, yeah, he, he's uh, I, I would say he's the computer geek. They're all computer geeks. And um, Sidney Poitier plays the really sort of straight-laced, stern ex-FBI agent whose name yeah. is Creasy? Chris. Chris. Don- Donald oh, Chris. Chris. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, they're, 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 that's what they do on a day-to-day basis. But then Redford gets cornered by Danny Quincannon from the West Wing and some <laughs> other guy. Oh, I love I'm so very, very young and trying to be tough, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, and they work for the NSA, and uh, they, uh, they they retain Redford this time to to steal. The, to, is it to steal the box? Yeah. Well, retains retains a polite word. They, they blackmail, blackmail him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They say, into helping. Them. You can either help us or go to federal prison for this crime, which you've somehow managed to dodge us for for decades. Yeah, and there then ensues a alarmingly relevant conversation about how they're investigating somebody for possibly having um, links with Russia and um, (laughs) exchanging communications with the government there and there's this whole thing about oh haven't they heard we're friends with Russia now none of this is is like a worry anymore and I'm just sat there slowly tapping one finger against my cheek (laughs) thinking hmm (laughs) And um, I, I will say a side note uh, that uh, since River Phoenix left us so early, it is lovely to be able to uncover films that he did, which I haven't seen uh, before. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, same here. I'd never seen this, and I was a mm. massive River Phoenix fan in the early 90s. Which, which films of his did, did you particularly like, um, apart from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Uh, <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is okay, as far as his performance is concerned. <laughs> I've seen that. Pretty good. Um, well, I mean, Stand By Me is an obvious one. Yes, um, he's fantastic. In oh, Running on Empty is one which hardly anybody has seen and is fantastic. Martha Plimpton is also wonderful in that. As um, she is wonderful in pretty much everything. He basically in. plays the kid of um, a couple who were into uh, Vietnam activism in their youth and have been on the run from the police for years. Oh, um, that's fantastic. I love that, that film. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um 
What else did I like him in? I actually quite like My Own Private Idaho. It's mm-hmm. it's cliched and, and kind of silly now, but I, I do kind of like it. Mm-hmm. Um, the lead in Little Nikita as well. Uh, yes. Thought so. Yeah. It's, God, it's years since I've seen that one, though. Um, I still regret that we never saw his... Interview turn the as, in, as the, in, interviewer, uh, as the interviewer. In interview the vampire. Yeah, Christian but Christian Slater was a, a perfectly acceptable replacement. Yeah. See, it's it's weird because when he left off, uh, DiCaprio picked up and went, "Okay, well, I can do all the rest of these." <laughs> yeah. Fair point. True. Mm. Okay, so um, there's also Mary McDonnell, who I believe was going to be a bank teller originally. So most likely, she would have been the one who said, "Not a good job." And, and then they made her into his old girlfriend so that they could be more of a, uh, a swifter introduction to her character in the film. And uh, I, I love Mary McDonnell in, in everything she's ever been in. Donnie Darko, Independence Day, uh, and of course BSG. I, I had no idea the role was beefed up, and I'm so glad they did that. Mm-hmm. Because yes, her role is already pretty... Oh my gosh. Yeah, she she spends that entire movie making bricks out of a very small amount of straw. And um, I, I'm, I'm but, okay, really but impressed. But take a step back. She is the polymath yes. of that movie. We were talking about she this. Is the brilli- she's a brilliant woman who's obviously made a very good career for herself. She tutors prodigy artistic musical children. She also walks into a cryptology lecture in the late 80s, early 90s and understands everything. She's a fabulous wardrobe, lots of money, well cultured. Why on earth is she slumming with these these, these boys? (laughs) (laughs) One of my my favorite exchanges in in that entire movie is, is... the first time he goes to see her. And aside from, again, the subversion of expectation where it looks like she's playing piano and it's actually the kid, mm. it's the, like, I, I need you to explain it to me. Let's go to this lecture in his field that she doesn't, he doesn't understand a word of that she's going to explain to him, and oh, by the way, she's a brilliant pianist. Mm. Yes. Well, that, when I, uh, when I saw uh, the piano, I thought there's going to be some kind of code cracking involving music here, isn't there? I wish. And oh, I wish. Technically, although they do have that marvellous scene where they're trying to piece things together from the audio, um, yeah, yeah. because all they know is is what um, Bish could hear from the trunk. I, oh, that scene was magnificent. I loved that. That is the best scene of the movie. And that <sighs> is the one that makes me homesick. Oh. Because I drove across the Dumbarton Bridge every day. Mm-hmm to commute and so hearing them talk about figuring out which bridge it is Mm. just kills me a side note though that the sound that is made by the car going across it is in fact the Dumbarton Bridge the photo they show you of the scene of the van driving across Mm -hmm. is the San Mateo it's one bridge further north that doesn't Uh. make any sense why would they do (laughs) like for a start I gave them points for having it set in San Francisco and not making a big deal out of the Golden Gate Bridge in fact they actively dismiss it yeah. It's one of the only films set in San Francisco which doesn't like feature the Golden Gate Bridge prominently or, or have a scene or on it. Or the Presidio or, yeah. the Gold, or Golden Gate Park or any of the other kind of tropes. You, mm. you do see the ferry building in the background. Yeah, you do see Alcatraz. Point, yes. But that's, I mean, they're, they're background shots. It's yeah, not yeah. big important notes. But no, that's, that's the scene that, one, I love the most and, two, that makes me absolutely homesick. Oh, um, also, speaking of Leo DiCaprio from from earlier, this uh, the team kind of reminded me of the guys from Inception. 
uh, and I was thinking like when that when it first started that you know they were going to be getting cocky with each other, but then they were going to be explaining hacking to us over and over again. And I was like, no, no, please don't. Oh, they don't. Oh, that's good. Mm. Good. Well done. Yeah. Because um, everybody loves and sings the praises of Inception, and Christopher Nolan is absolutely, without a doubt, a cinematic genius. But that film is is ninety two percent exposition, and the other eight percent is shootouts on skis. Mm. One of yes, the- but it's Tom Hardy shooting things on skis. I know. I don't care. It is Tom Hardy, and he's lovely. Yeah, it's Tom Hardy shooting at Killian Murphy on skis. So you know, we can accept that. A remake of Sneakers with Tom Hardy as. Poitier's character. I, I could get behind that. I could do that. I could absolutely get behind that. <laughs> um, one of the other things that, um, that I really appreciated about the way they set the team up um, and this again uh, speaks to the the realism of of what they've tried to do is that although they each have their own individual specialisms it's not that thing where this is the explosive expert this is the um the tech expert this is the comms expert and nobody infringes on anybody else's area they can all do this stuff Mm -hmm. it's just that they have their own individual preferences as to what they're particularly good at um, and that's another reason why it makes perfect sense that uh, Mary McDonnell would be just as into as this, this kind of stuff as they are. When they sit down yeah. to do the Scrabble tiles and she's straight in there as well and, and helping him move them around. And the fact that it's not... It's not that thing where he suddenly had a brainwave about what the the um, about the fact that it's a um, an anagram and what the correct answer is, and so he uses the Scrabble tiles to spell it out and give us a visual reference to what's going on in his head. He literally he sits down with the tiles to work it out. Mm. Yeah, exactly. The movie does a really good job of visually showing that hack computer cryptography is a process as much as a result. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we see it where where um, Whistler is playing around with the different diodes on the chip. He's trying to come, okay, he's very methodically going through them, or when they're plotting out, the um, listening in on the windows of the building, trying to figure out the layout internally. They have a very methodical approach. There's always at least two of them. One is doing documentation, one is doing experimentation. It's a very They do a really good job of showing that this is a process they go through, and it takes time, and they reach a result, and then once they reach a result, they go to the next logical step. Yeah, and it's there's not never... just this spontaneous. Well, obviously it means this, so let's go here and punch some guy. Absolutely, and there's never a control alt delete and guess a password and oh look we're in. Yeah, yeah. Um, the job they've actually been set up to do is uh, Donald Logue, the uh, guy who was Deacon Frost's right hand man from Blade. He got his right hand cut off twice. Uh, and uh, he was also an asshole in Jerry Maguire. Uh, is a, Dr. Gunter Janak, who has created a thing. And uh, they steal this rabbit's foot from him. Uh, a, one of the st- set pieces for me, uh, uh, standouts, is when um, Martin is stuck in his office having to think on his feet with, with limited help in his ear. Uh, trying to talk to um, Gunter's what's what's the word? Girlfriend. Girlfriend. <laughs> Girlfriend. Girlfriend. I'm going to remove my hand now. Please do not scream. I promise nothing is going to happen to you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, where are you? He's a PI. You're a private investigator. I'm a private investigator. But why? Who hired you? Huh? 
Who hired you? This is Janik. There is not Mrs. Janik. <clears throat> yeah? Uh, you got us stumped. Oh, yeah? Who do you think paid for your little love job to Mexico City? <gasps> that was good. Velma. Velma Janik. She lives in Montreal where she handles her family's real estate holdings. Vast real estate holdings. Farms, banks, shopping malls. Two shopping malls. She supports Gutter, but figured he was cheating on her, and that's why she hired me. Mr. Light. I'll kill him. Oh, no, no, no. Wait. Whoa. No! No, no. No. Get a hold of yourself, Dr. Roscoe. Get a hold of yourself. Mm -mm. Now, what you got to do is you got to not tell him you know. <laughs> nope. We weren't here. We didn't talk. You don't know me. Oh. You don't know anything about a wife. Oh, you just give me one good reason why. All right, I'll give you a reason. Give you a really good reason. It's just what she would want you to do. It's just what she would want you to do. It's just what she wants you to do. I don't understand. Yeah, I, I, sometimes I don't understand myself. Here, look, I, I might lose my license for this, but my client is a vindictive, bitter woman. She's been withholding marital favors from Gunther for many, many years, and now she's out to ruin him. Uh, and she's using you to, to, to get to her. And she's using you, me to get to her, you. I know, I know that's confusing, but don't you see what's happening here? You and me, we're just pawns in this ugly little game. If you love him. If you love him. If you love him. If you really love him, then just keep on loving him. And never let him know that, that you know what he thinks you don't know, that you know. You know? And give him head whenever he wants. Give him head. Help. Be a... Be, be a beacon in his sad and lonely life. Can you do that for better? Yes, yes, I can. I can. Okay, good. Now get out of here. <laughs> mistress, mistress, mistress is you the one. You really love for. him. Absolutely. You just keep I, right on loving. I yes. assumed initially, and I slapped myself for this. I was like, oh, she's his PA, she's his secretary, she's mm -hmm. assistant, mm -hmm. his assistant. No, she's a visiting astrophysics professor. Oh. So there. Yes. <laughs> there to me. Also, can we, can we pause just a second there? Can you think of any movie earlier that has this kind of street level technology where people had earpieces like that? Mm. It, it is chronologically one of the earliest that I can think of where they do that. Of course, now these days we all think about leverage, and maybe that's because we've been doing a leverage we watched recently, and we are convinced that Hardison and Parker have a very well-worn DVD of this movie in their collection. <laughs> but it's the first time I remember seeing headsets, specifically those little in-ear espionage-style pieces. For, for me, it was this and Speed, which hit the same year, and mm -hmm. which I also have a... In the case of Speed, it's probably a very undeserved love for. Um, oh, no, no, Speed's totally deserved. Speed, Speed 2, on the other hand. Yeah, no, no one has an undeserved yeah, yeah. love for Speed 2. <laughs> But the, the, the throat mics the SWAT officers have in speed. But but, but again, the that's, that's military slash tactical grade. These are street.
street level Radio Shack buying people. Mm, good point. Building that level of technology and i can't think of other examples i don't think there are any i think, mm. I think you're right i think this is the first time the yes, first but the whole you know go ahead sir uh the first one i can remember was mission impossible one when they were talking into each other's ears um and ethan but didn't ethan have like a headset on yes he did yeah so again, even that wasn't one of the invisible like in the ear mm. thing and they're an agency they're an organization again they're, that's they're like bond love tech that's yeah. not yeah. you know your boisterous, yeah, exactly. Okay. If, if your if your um, uh, organization has a, an initials acronym, then it doesn't count. They have yeah. access <laughs> to the best tech. Okay, it, uh, obviously. So yeah, they, they steal this box and they're trying to work out what it is. And then there's the uh, scenes that we've already mentioned, which are um, uh, fiddling around with Scrabble tiles and sounds to uh, uh, <laughs> establish that it is in fact a code that can crack. Uh, so, a, a coding device that can decode fill in the blank, guys? Well, anything. That's the point. It's Everything. like a skeleton. Everything. That's the point. Everything. It's basically a cryptological skeleton key. That right. you can, what happens is uh, the CIA, former CIA character, Crease. Crease, pulls out his little black book of, okay, call this. This is the Federal Reserve. And let us take a moment to uh, reminisce over the glorious audio modem where they picked up <laughs> the handset. <laughs> And on a speaker, oh my god! Tops, and we all went, ouch! Oh, yes. we're old. But yeah. he pulls out his little black book and they dial everything they can think of that's unhackable and they hack all of it. Mm. So if, if this was remade today, then the trailer would have a bit where it's like, boom, it can decode. What can it decode? Everything. everything. That, <laughs> that thing with the phone handset, though, that says something very significant about technology and the speed with which it changed prior to everything going kaboom in the in the mid to late 90s. Because that is exactly the same telephone handset that they have set up in 1969. And between 1969 yeah. and 1992, they are using the, the same, same process, the same technology. Yeah. And yet, the way they handle everything that they work with, that was the other thing. I was looking at it thinking, my God, everything here looks visually to me it looks so primitive it looks so you know that their um their word processors have got that weird little dotty text that i haven't seen since i did my gcses um but oh yeah they have print out the big dot matrix fed printer that's right yeah but they're handling it in a way that makes it clear that it's not it might not be cutting edge because like you said these guys are, are putting the stuff together out of radio shack but it's pretty modern for what they're working with. They don't treat them like antiques. They don't treat them like, you know, there's never a sense of they do it this way because they're old school. You know, there is a, here there is only school. Yeah, it, it's exactly that. It's the, these are people who are looking to do futuristic things with tools of the period, as opposed to what I would call the hipsterism approach, which is wanting to use tools of an earlier period for the sake of doing so mm. yeah there's a, there's a lot to be mined in the the, the 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 reversal the kind of mirror image that is geek culture versus hipster culture Definitely. and how one may very well represent the pendulum extreme of the other it's it's like we were talk, talking about at fantasy con how superhero fiction having an upswing in popularity might be a direct result that dystopian fiction was the previous big kind of thing and everybody got very tired of it being dark and gloomy and therefore we wanted our four color spandex back yes 
Um, so, well, especially in YA fiction, you go from um, you know you go from the Hunger Games and Divergent straight into this big upswell, at least in written fiction, of superheroes and specifically non-Caucasian superheroes, which is yeah, nice to the see. Sarah Kuhn book in particular. Uh, yeah, and Miss Marvel is a perfect visual example as well. It's just that whole well, we're tired of it being dark and gloomy now. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, speaking of which, are you guys... I think I've asked you before, but are you guys game for the Hunger Games when we finally cover them? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, okay, now, I would be lying my pants off if I uh, said that I, when I was watching this movie, I didn't predict exactly the, 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 the flow of events that, that would occur. Like, after they'd stolen the box, after they'd been contacted by these shady guys claiming to be the NSA that then when they were just about to hand it over it turns out that these shady guys claiming to be the NSA were just a wee bit shadier than they thought so that then they try to get away from them and then they um, frame for killing a cultural attache named Greg Wan who hasn't been framed for that um, and uh, then it, it would appear that um, the, um, Martin's been set up by somebody who clearly has it in for him and you know since it's kind of perfectly set up at the beginning it made perfect sense that the, the person setting him up would be drumroll the guy at the beginning who got arrested by the uh, oh we didn't we didn't uh, l- leave you that we didn't lie to you folks and say that he was killed in jail because uh, if we if we told you that he was killed in jail that's that's what happens in the uh, the NSA sort of vouch that particular nugget and sort of we all know what happened to him in jail he's dead so let's not be asking about Cosmo again no, he's totally yeah. alive, and he totally set uh, Martin up to steal this thing. And then he kidnaps him again after framing him for the, the killing of his uh, um, buddy Gregoire. So then he wakes up in a Bond villain's underground cave. Yeah. Um, yes, with with, uh, with small swimming dogfish-type shark things. And it's, it's Ben goddamn Kingsley uh, with a creepy yes. ponytail uh, in a sort of a hello there, and now for my next trick. And then he sort of makes aspirin disappear, which is uh, extremely um, eccentric. And, and, and Alistair, you said this is one of your favourite uh, bits of cinema, so go for it. Yes, for three reasons. Firstly, like I was talking about earlier, the set dressing. Mm-hmm. Those three outlines in the background, they're three identical outlines of the guy in the hat and the, and the with the briefcase. Black hat, white one hat, is, yeah. Yes, classic hacker terminology and the fact that there is a third state represented there which is neither of the above oh. and how that's the area that the pair of them live in or, or are trying to navigate or are say. trying to navigate nice. secondly that the whole thing is set up to remind you that Bish and Cosmo are the same guy in terms of outlook or they were they're lit different they're lit, lit exactly the same way they're lit slightly in shadow they 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 go back to that kind of wonderful rosencrantz and guildenstern-esque verbal tennis where they're talking about exactly how much damage cosmo can or has done mm. and at no point until the very end of that part of the conversation does bishop express any horror he's amazed and amused and envious and, the, they could have been the same guys yes just if the roles had been reversed but that's the point that's the whole point with the bottle of aspirin is it's the coin trick at the beginning where Cosmo cheats yes. to send Bish to get the pizza and dooms himself in doing so if it had been the other way around if he hadn't have cheated and had got it you know fair and square 
it would have been bitch in prison, and maybe we would have been in the same place, but with reversed roles. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The, the parallels that they set actually through that conversation are quite interesting because you've got the fact that um, they've both gone to work for um, allegedly organised versions of the of what they used to do, except that, you know, obviously Cosmo's working for the mob. This is the, the criminal element of the organised and um, uh, Bish has ended up kind of consulting for the NSA and, and various other um, sort of big banks and things like that but there's also this feeling that that ultimately they're the ones who know what they're doing the people that are paying them not enough money to handle their vast quantities of money um, don't know anything about it and so if they wanted to they could undermine them with a click of their fingers but neither of them ever has and that again kind of emphasizes this idea that they're not that dissimilar Exactly. And the fact that that conversation takes place, if I remember correctly, on the shell of a Cray supercomputer really drives that home. Yeah. The the visual of these two guys, like you say, talking about all the incredible damage they could do. And they're sitting on what was at one point one of the most powerful computers on the planet. That he's using as furniture in his bond villain lair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much ego caught up in it it is the whole i am the lone samurai no one knows my journey except my peer which goes right back to the stupid ponytail and goes right back to the heart of hacker culture yeah Yeah. it's the notice me senpai thing you know it's the cause chaos so you can be rewarded for causing chaos and so people can see you Mm. and accept that the fundamentally ephemeral thing you're doing has had a real world impact absolutely and the the one time you see him use that power is when he adds um uh bishop's alias to the police record which will instantly make it possible for the authorities to come after him which they haven't been able to do for 20 20 20 odd years yeah We're going to change the world, Marty. Remember? Did you ever get around to actually doing it? No. I guess not. Well, I think I can. Really? Yes. What's wrong with this country, Marty? Money. You taught me that. Evil defense contractors had it. Noble causes did not. Politicians are bought and sold like so much chattel. Our problems multiply. Pollution, crime, drugs, poverty, disease, hunger, despair. We throw gobs of money at them. Problems always get worse. Why is that? Because money's most powerful ability is to allow bad people to continue doing bad things at the expense of those who don't have it. I agree. Now, who didn't you say you were working for? Oh, that's just my day job. Listen. When I was in prison, I learned that everything in this world, including money, operates not on reality, but the perception of reality. Pause it. People think a bank might be financially shaky. Consequence, people start to withdraw their money. Result, pretty soon it is financially shaky. Conclusion, you can make banks fail. I've already done that. Maybe you've read about a few. (laughs) Think bigger. Stock market? Yes. Currency market? Yes. Commodities market? Yes. Small countries? I might even be able to crash the whole damn system. Destroy all records of ownership. Think of it, Marty. No 
no more rich people, no more poor people. Everybody's the same. Isn't that what we said we always wanted? Because you haven't gone crazy, have you? Have you? Who else is going to change the world, Marty? Bring peace. <laughs> You are crazy. I like the fact that um, Bond villainy, though he is, he's also still personable. There is uh, a, an odd camaraderie still present there, and he doesn't just... Put it like this. If Spectre had been more like this, I would probably have liked it more. The thing I love about that is that Cosmo has no idea how to feel. Mm. And you can actually see it shift mm, mm. scene. That there are points where he is so pleased that he has his friend back. Mm. And then where he remembers how angry he is. Yeah. One of the best delivered lines in, in couplets in that movie is I cannot kill my friend. Kill my friend. Yeah. And Cosmo is completely adrift. He's he's lost in every sense. He doesn't know why he's doing what he's doing and he doesn't know how to deal with the fact that he's got what he wanted and what he wanted has destroyed any possibility of the friendship that has defined his life but he also finds himself unable to follow through on those moments where he had something concrete to cling to which would have been his anger at um, at Marty for, for getting away with it when he did exactly. exactly when it comes down to it Cosmo's trapped in the, in the theoretical in the very real sense he's dead he can't touch the world in any way that gives him any meaning yeah and that makes them such a contrast to the standard action hero because those the the, the like you say the you know Jean-Claude Van Damme never met a problem he couldn't punch in the balls um, is the complete <laughs> antithesis of these these men who are talking about the the only true power left in the world is in their hands and yet they cannot act on it and when they are in a position of of you know performing an act and, and making a choice they find themselves unable to do it in fact i think part of what again marks the differences between them rather than the um uh the similarities is the fact that Cosmo is so alone. He has henchmen. They are supposed to be his hands. They are supposed to act for him. They can't. Martin has friends, and there are many, many things that they do on his behalf, including a blind man driving a van backwards towards a building at speed. Which was fabulous. It was, wasn't it? Oh, my God. That was... <laughs> I didn't know whether to laugh or stuff my fist in my mouth and go, oh my God, please don't crash it. Stop right about boom. Yes. Now. <laughs> okay, so after this, uh, what does, he, what does uh, Cosmo tell him to do? Is it like, get the box back for me? I need the box. Yes. By this point, Bish has the MacGuffin. He has the skeleton key. Mm-hmm. And... Um, co- Cosmo needs it because Cosmo is the accountant for organized crime, which again is that the beautiful line about organized crime. Trust me, it's not that organized. Um, and this, he's blackmailed into into handing over the material that, that that Cosmo needs, and of course they 
do that thing which the entire movie is about, which is six very clever people thinking very hard and working out ways to solve a seemingly impossible problem. So uh, it involves Mary McDonnell um, dating Stephen Tobolowski and convincing him <laughs> that she's absolutely besotted with him. For folks who've seen Groundhog Day, this was uh, Needle Nose Ned, Ned the Head, Bing! Um, really smart, great guy. We Hate Movies did an interview with him. He's got his own podcast. Uh, he talks all about Hollywood. Um, you know, really switched on uh, guy, Stephen Tobolowski. He's a uh, born character actor. Um, and... Uh, yeah amounts of fun on this movie yeah I, I, oh yeah I've he seen, seen him talk about it he said when I was done I went over to the director and begged him to overexpose the film so we'd have to do it again <laughs> the director by the way didn't really want to do like he wasn't interested in this particular film at all but then they said oh Robert Redford's doing it and he'd always wanted to work with Redford so he said yeah I'll totally do it and well lucky for you guys he did um, so yeah the, the, um, Mary McDonnell uh, woos this um, I mean <sighs> It, you could say that he is your stereotypical computer geek and that he's like a woman I'm scared um, which you know back in, in, in the 90s was uh, a, a little bit easier to sort of uh, point the finger at and go there, there you go that's uh, somebody who spent uh, um, way too much time on their own does that scan does it make way sense um, it, it kind of does but I think because they set it up with that scene where they're going through his uh, rubbish to try and find the mm. um, the letter about the the pass card mm. um, and uh, Liz works out from the contents of his rubbish mm. that he the kind of person that he is the kind of woman that he's looking for mm. um, and and basically this is what brings them to the conclusion that they need to send her and not some hot friend of Carl's yeah. um, because he's he's Although, yes, they do kind of play that um, that stereotype of he's going to respond to the woman that we send to seduce him and get the information. Yeah. Um, you, they they can't just send in a blonde with big boobs and expect yeah. him to, to spill everything because that's not how he works. No, she has to be kind of take charge mm. and uh, he, he responds to that. She has to ever so slightly over-egg the pudding, uh, in which case he spends quite a lot of the time a little suspicious. But that, of course, keeps the tension up and the comedy. Um, and there's my personal favorite line, maybe in the whole f uh, movie, is Would you like to have breakfast together? Yes, that would be nice. Shall I phone you or net you? Which I don't think anyone's ever said in a film before or since. I don't think anyone's ever said in real life. <laughs> no, 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 he doesn't say phone you or net you. He says phone you or nudge you, implying she spent the night. Oh. That's what I take away from it. Really? Hang on. Yeah. Let me phone you or nudge you, as in you can already... I, can we have breakfast? Shall I phone you or nudge? Whoa. Hang on, let me just... And suddenly he's creepy, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. And he turns very nasty when he finds out who she is. And you get that yucky, yucky look on his face, that kind of horrible, slimy smile when he says it. And she's like, shut God, you're that, so right. Oh my God! That means like he. It is. You're absolutely right. It is nudge you, and that means he's he basically just said. Her and she's like, uh, no. <laughs> he's basically just said in not so many words. How do you like your eggs, fried or fertilized? Yes, yeah. that's exactly that. It's that, that kind of line. Completely changes her reaction. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Mary McDonnell is uh, a qu the queen of sort of tight smiling and just going hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Wow. Oh, incidentally, when they do the biopic of Hillary Clinton. Oh, you think? Yeah. Uh -huh. Good God, yeah. yes. Okay. Hell yeah. 
Um, so, <laughs> I see. I was going to say uh, Kathy Bates. What is Hillary Clinton? Yeah, the unseekable Molly Brown. No, she's a bit Joe in the office. Yeah, Clinton's not really that. No, kind of take charge, no nonsense. She's really, a, she's a bit more. No, um... I'm with you completely, Mary McDonnell. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, then I, I, I definitely want to see her trump that orange. <laughs> Fuck. Um. <clears throat> <laughs> anyway, so I mean, by the time this goes out, that will be uh, that will be a known factor. This is this isn't going out for a few weeks. So, um, <laughs> after Stephen Tobolowsky's disastrous um, uh, wooing scenario, there's uh, <laughs> which now I'm gobsmacked that she went to his house for a meal at all. Yeah, that's a. <laughs> yeah. mm. Oh, actually, just a, a slight aside, just to go back to the beginning of this whole thing, where they're trying to work out how to get into um, Cosmo's building um, by working out who's in the office next to his. That was one of the things that I thought was so awesome about this. They've he, he starts off in the room and it's this brilliant Bond villain lair and then step back and you discover it's this perfectly ordinary looking office building in a perfectly ordinary retail park with a perfectly ordinary office that has lights and lifts and voice codes and everything. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It is not actually in a bunker. It is this whole block of little Silicon Valley developmental, mm. you know, yeah. companies mm. just on the other side of the bridge. Yeah, Which kind of underlines that theme of, um, you know, the, this is where the power is now. It's with, it is with information. The villains of the piece yeah. are the ones who, who work in the offices and do nine to five and go home to their empty apartments and electronic dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, he certainly was the villain of the piece. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's the, there's the final sort of uh, espionage mission to uh, to retrieve this box. And uh, the, 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 the important thing isn't specifically what happens within that, uh, so much as the fact that when Cosmo um, finally corners them, uh, he is undecided as to how exactly to... what exactly to do to his friend Martin, because he wants to kill him and he doesn't. And... Um, at the same time, in the same way that Martin Freeman in The Hobbit is able to feel two things very strongly at the same time. As you said earlier, he, he says, I can't kill my friend, and then says to one of his henchmen, kill my friend. And then River Phoenix falls in on, on him from the ceiling and the, the day is saved. But then that's, that's punctuated with the scene on the roof where yep. he's pushed even further towards, you know, well, you, I could just kill you at this point, but, um, you know, I'm not really it's not really in me right now which is again uh, one of one of the absolute best scenes in this yeah absolutely because again it comes down to the points that have already been made that it's the difference between the theoretical and the emotional mm. the only reason bish has a line out of that building is because five of his friends have risked their lives and careers to get it to him mm. Every single person surrounding Cosmo leaves the moment the money disappears. Yeah. Mm. And that's why they are fundamentally different. They um, Ultimately, uh, Cosmo has allowed his bitterness to define him. Yes, absolutely. Um, and... Like so, it's uh, Martin gives him the box back and then uh, leaves, pretty much clicking his heels. Uh, <laughs> Cosmo opens the box. Oh, of course it's empty, and then pretty much gives up on the uh, the old chase. And they get back to their base, 
and who's waiting for them in the dark but Nick Fury himself uh, yeah. James L. Jones as Abbott that, I, I didn't catch it the, the first best, time the best three minute cameo ever yeah yes. just, maybe, maybe. he just comes in they, steals it and leaves it's beautiful it's, this is my favourite bit of the movie It's it's got a, a joyful kind of um, yeah, like what, what would normally be uh, the, the, the baleful Oh, the, you know, this was our jurisdiction. Not anymore, it's not. And then we're going to take your stuff and go. Um, it, it becomes more of a sort of, uh, you know, and I want this, and this, and this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, of an increasingly um, you know, holding on to his dignity, James Earl Jones. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a scene that gets progressively sillier, but somehow never loses its honesty. Mm. And it's it's when I was I was making earlier about how it's a very realistic kind of absurd Yeah, that, that you have this guy who's obviously used to kind of going and remember I was never here mm. and he almost edges over into panic by the time I, I, I think it's the, the, the third demand is the one that he responds to with the, we, we don't do that sort of thing and, and you can see him going this never happens what the, what the hell it's a callback to the party earlier in the movie where they thought okay We've succeeded, and we're going to split the money, and this is what I want. And what they, I, I think, but that's the point. The whole point of the scene is they've gone through all of this. They have literally the key to unlock. They are the masters of unlocking. They are Jill Valentine. <laughs> they can unlock everything. And Mother still wants a Winnebago. Yeah. And Priest still wants to take his wife to Europe. They have not. It, it's the almost the sitcom situation. But even though we've been through all of this, who we are as people and our ultimate dreams are unchanged. Our moral centers are still intact. Good night and good also, luck wants goodwill and peace towards all men. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just, just, just as an aside, this is something which passed me by at the time, but it's surprisingly hard these days. The only gag in that entire movie about Dan Aykroyd being a big guy is one he makes. And it's not self-deprecating. It's honest. That line about, I've never had a really cool car I could fit in comfortably. Mm. So I wonder when, given the propensity for both genders to experience fat shaming, especially in contemporary popular culture, you know, that is... It, it, it's almost... It, the, the, there's, it's really hard to articulate. There's nothing sad about it. It's just a guy going, yeah, I'm a big guy. I want a car that I can fit in. It's like that moment in School of Rock where you have Jack Black talking to the, the girl who's a little bit bigger than everybody else. And then he mm-hmm. ends mm-hmm. the wonderful because I like to eat. Mm-hmm. And the amount of friends of mine I know who saw that movie and audibly went, oh, when he said that out loud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like the part in Fish Called Wanda where John Cleese goes on the rants about being British. Yes. Yeah. And I know people who lived in the UK at the time when the movie came out and who were just flabbergasted that it was articulated out loud. And I and it, it speaks very, very much to the other points that have been made, that through all of this, all of them are not unchanged, but yeah. still honest. They're still themselves. Mm, yeah. They still want yeah. to really help. <laughs> the honesty and sincerity honest- is one of the reasons that they they get away with um, the joke where um, Carl asks for the uh, the female agent's phone number. Yeah, 
Um, Otherwise, that would make him come off like a creep, but he actually ends up as a really sweet kid. Exactly, because he never loses that genuineness and authenticity, and A, because it's River Phoenix, and Mm. that's the way he acts. Also, it's Um, the fact that she finds it charming and gives it to him voluntarily after Abbott said no. Absolutely, it's not given to her by him, which would be really creepy. Um, But uh, but yeah, also that... You wouldn't necessarily have to do this um, if it was a if it was a more subtle movie, but I liked the fact that they they actually articulated it when she actually says you could have anything you wanted, and all you want is my phone number. Mm. Um, and, yes. and like I said, it's the it's the sincerity of it that sells it, that and makes it not a weird, creepy thing. And just uh, well, he's the youngest guy in the room. Obviously, he wants to get his end wet. Yeah, absolutely. And it's you're. You're absolutely right. Listen, watching it back a couple of days ago, that's one of the very few moments in the movie where it just just starts to skirt into, oh, you would not have done this right if you were making this film now territory. And you're right, because the agency, and that's an unintentional pun, um, sits so so completely with her. Yeah. And like you say, it's the fact she gives him her phone number after her boss says no after her boss says no that makes that work yeah and the fact that liz says no i'm fine i don't need anything (laughs) this is the boys club i'm just here for the ride there is wonderful running all the way through that movie where bish just can't get a read on her and and it's one of the best reactions i've ever seen from robert redford when she does the oh i'm fine and he just looks at her with this kind of what is what? And, and, and McDonald has this just beatific smile, which is either, yeah, we're back together, or I will make you pay for this for the rest of your life. Or more importantly, it's, would you get out of my house? Yes. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Actually, yeah, the, the, the scene where he um, has, has been beaten up um, and goes to her place. Yeah. Um, I love the way um, that when, when she lets him in, the way they're talking to each other is still, it's very sarcastic. It's very that sort of, you know, they flipped round. He's saying she looks terrible and she's saying, oh, you look absolutely marvellous. Yes. Um, and it's completely contrasted by the tone of voice, which is very tender and um, the um, and very apologetic on his part um, and the uh, physical actions, which are that she's obviously, you know, cleaning him up and, and, um, and tending to his injuries. Um, and that really creates this incredibly intimate dynamic between them um, in spite of the fact that you haven't seen them interact in terms of a relationship in fact it's almost like one of the running gags of the movie everybody keeps saying oh it's great you two have got back together we have we haven't yes yeah, exactly yeah what do you want mr bishop clear up my record get out of my life I don't have much choice, do I? Not unless you want to read about it in Newsweek. Deal. The box. Not so fast. I want a Winnebago. What? Fully equipped. Big kitchen, waterbed, AM, FM, CD, microwave. This is not a car dealership, pal. He wants a Winnebago. All right. A Winnebago. Thank you. Burgundy interior. Now the box. <clears throat> uh, I have never taken my wife to Europe. I'm sorry to hear it. Give me the box. 
You will buy me two round-trip first-class tickets to Athens, Lisbon, Madrid, and Scotland. Don't, don't forget Tahiti. And Tahiti. Tahiti is not in Europe. Excuse me. When you get the box, then you give us geography lessons. Until then, this man goes to Tahiti. Fine. Tahiti. Carl? The young lady with the Uzi. She single. Uh, yeah, Carl. Excuse us. Yeah. On a telephone number. How about a lunch? You can chaperone. No, I will not do this. Hey, Abby. Abby, come on. Now, the FBI would give him twins. No! Wait a second. You can have anything you want, and you're asking for my phone number. Yes. Two seven three nine one six four. Area code four one five. I'm Carl. I'm Mary. I'm going to be sick. Are we done here? No, not yet. Whistler. I want peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Oh, this is ridiculous. Are you serious? I want peace on earth and goodwill toward men. We are the United States government. We don't do that sort of thing. Just gonna have to try. All right. I'll see what I can do. Thank you very much. That's all I ask. How about you? What do you want? Oh, I'm fine. Just a little detail, but did you notice that the phone number was not a 555 area code? And this was a year before they pointed that out, that particular trope, in uh, Last Action Hero. So, just another nice little concession to the real world and technology. And the only thing I would change in retrospect about uh, Mother is is his 90s floppy curtain hair. Which is, <laughs> I mean, I had that haircut, and I will destroy any photograph of myself with that haircut. But in this day and age, it's, it's practically unforgivable. But, uh, but everything else is fine. Um, so, I mean, that's the, the, effectively the end of the movie, is that Abbott walks out with the uh, machine that they give him, and uh, uh, Martin has, or Bish, has retained one very, very important chip from it to uh, prevent uh, even the American government having access to this unspeakable power. And it has to be researched. So I'm assuming Abbott has it you know, taken away and researched by top men in other words nailed in a box in the back of a warehouse (laughs) (laughs) the Uh, 23rd of its type (laughs) warehouse 30 Um, but again that that idea that um, that Bishop has um, is kind of on the, the forefront of this power that is information and really deep down he doesn't think anybody should have this power including him mm hmm hmm yeah, which is both a complete revocation of everything that Cosmo stands for. Mm. And looked at from a slightly different angle, the ultimate destination for everything Cosmo stands for. You know, the, you, you, you could really take this all, all the way to the end of the line and go, the truly powerful thing is relinquishing power. 
I will leave you guys with one final thought uh, on this film, which is that at one point during the project, uh, the director, Robinson, received a visit from men claiming to be representatives of the Office of Naval Intelligence, who indicated that for reasons of national security, the film could not include any reference to a handheld device that can decode codes. Robinson was highly concerned as such a device was key to the film's plot, but after consulting with a lawyer from the film studio, he realised that the visit had been a prank instigated by a member of the cast, possibly Ackroyd or Redford. Oh, That's it, oh. brilliant. It's so totally Ackroyd. <laughs> Given what, what Ackroyd's grandfather did for a living, that's definitely Ackroyd. <laughs> they should do that more. Honestly. Love it. Yep. That's great. Um, so thank you so, so much, guys, for coming on talking about uh, sneakers because uh, we, we were... Um, we were at a loss to be able to compile all of our data on this one, and you guys are giving it form and shape and enthusiasm in a beautiful way. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you so much for having us on. This is, uh, as, you, as you can probably tell, this is a movie that's very dear to both of us. So yeah. and any excuse to talk about this is, is one we'll leap at. Okay, so where can folks find the best of what you guys are doing right now? After you. Uh, let's see. That's probably castofwonders.org. Let's see. So as of the time of we're recording this, we're in the middle of our Band Books Week special. So we've commissioned three special stories to talk about the power of literature and freedom of information and um, access to reading. Um, that's most of what I'm doing right now. My work at um, Escape Artist tends to be pretty much behind the scenes where Alistair is on point. And as for the stuff I'm doing, doing uh escape artists can be found in five locations all of these are org domains uh escape pod is our weekly science fiction podcast which does short science fiction stories pseudopod is the show i host and is very near and dear to me and does weekly horror short fiction podcastle uh, does weekly fantasy short fiction and cast of wonders does weekly ya mothership zeta which is also at mothership zeta.org as i said is our quarterly digital magazine, which crosses all the genres and folds in some really, really great extra content from nonfiction and a few other places as well. Uh, you can subscribe to MZ for ten bucks for a year. And that's four issues. Yeah, we haven't done the math yet, but I think that works out as you're essentially getting a full-size paperback book for free. Uh, it's incredibly good value, and even if I didn't own the company. I would be recommending this as incredibly good value. In terms of other, of other places you can find me, um, I'm blogging regularly for Tor.com. My last two pieces there were about whether you watch the, you read the original story before seeing the movie or vice versa, and a retrospective look at Red Dwarf. Uh, I also review TV for MCM Buzz, which can be found at mcmbuzz.com, where I'm currently do, I'm gearing up for Gotham City. Season 3, and I'm currently doing Fear the Walking Dead, which I am watching so other people don't have to right now, and uh, <laughs> and American Horror Story, which is really, really good fun this season. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at, at Alistair Stewart, and you can find my website at alistairstewart.com. And not the least of your uh, accomplishments, uh, yeah, Alistair also plays Ajax in The Princess Thieves, the uh, brother of Oberon, if you folks are listening. The two Akka sat on the bank of the Thames, devouring hunks of bread with meat drippings. Oberon quietly chewed and regarded the other, who stared off at the barges passing them by. I, um, saw a pretty big dog today. A bull mastiff. Ajax looked across, suddenly aware that Oberon was there, and nodded enthusiastically. You like that? You know what kind that is? 
Ajax drew a large hand up to his own face and traced the fingers over, indicating the darkened jowls of this breed. Oberon nodded back. Good, that's right. What's the biggest you've seen this week? Scottish Deerhound. Big? Three feet high. Yeah, that's pretty big. Is that the same one as last week? Ajax looked at him with a slightly pained expression. Yes. No. Probably. They still treat you well? You getting enough rest? I sleep enough. Good. You doing anything else while you're not working? Remember I gave you that whittling knife? At this, Ajax brightened and reached into his waist pouch, proudly pulling out a small carved wooden dog. Kuvas. Kuvas? From Hungary. From Hungary. Biggest dog. Biggest dog. He laid it in Oberon's hand, and then gently closed the Akka's fingers around it. For me? Thank you, my friend. This is lovely. You were also in Tiger's Eye as the lawyer, whose name escapes me right now, Dr. Quincy. I, um, I, I believe we both were, and Marguerite kicked my ass. I was going to say, yeah, Mar- Marguerite was the, uh, the, the, the relatively evil barrister for uh, in charge of um, representing... No. She was, <laughs> you were totally pro-slavery. It was, it was shocking. But, uh, but extremely... Yes, <laughs> that's called acting, and uh, you guys are both fantastic. So if you folks uh, want to hear these guys uh, being giant cats, check out Tiger's Eye. Judge Harrington, the crime of murder in this fair country has a number of penalties, including hanging, but one of them is exile to Muscat. Is that correct? Correct. They can serve a life sentence in the mining colony there. Objection. Why should my clients, the Great Albion Trading Company, incur further expense to relocate their stock to an unintended locale? That would require the drafting of dozens of new contracts. Besides which, my clients are unwilling to send this poisonous recalcitrant element to labor within their shipyards or indeed any other enterprise. Overruled for now. I'm curious as to where you're going with this, Matthews. Thank you, Your Lordship. I would like to add an addendum to this hypothetical sentence. Okay, so that's all from us for this week. I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's School's Out. out. And let's close out with one of the most affecting pieces of music from this by the wonderful, now sadly departed, James Horner. This is Cosmo Old Friend.